The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hey everyone, Mel and Beck here. We just wanted to drop in and remind you to follow us on our social medias. So our Instagram and our Facebook are Rocky Mountain Red Handed and our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. Yeah, so go and check out our social medias. We always post great pics that have to do with our uh, cases, case notes, anything that we find interesting, we share with you guys. Also, Mel, what's that email address? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us in your case recommendations. We want to know about local cases in your community and how they have affected your towns. So hit us up. Let us know of of the cases you want to hear in the Rocky Mountains. We here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Melanie. Hi, Becky. This is our very first episode of Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I am so excited to be here with you today. This is great. We've got a great story to tell today. We hope you guys enjoy it. We're excited to get started. Well, let's get right into it, shall we? Let's do it. Mel, when I say Golden Colorado, what do you think of? I think of skiing and snow, Rocky Mountains. Just golden is beautiful. But I grew up watching the Coors beer commercials. And if you remember, Coors always mentioned Colorado in their advertising. It was actually a huge part of their their marketing campaigns, especially when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. And Golden is well known worldwide for being the home of the Coors Brewing Company. They have over 11 breweries worldwide, and is the second largest craft brewery in the U.S., coming in fifth worldwide. So, in fact, they brew over one billion gallons of beer each year. That is a lot of beer, That's Becky. A lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> so, to pay homage to their roots and their home, Coors always displays the Rocky Mountains on each of their beer cans. The Coors family is such a huge part of Golden, Colorado community, and especially during the time of our story, we're going to tell you today. They were influential, and in fact, they were loved by their community there in Golden. But one thing the Chorus family did not know was the danger hiding in their beloved Rocky Mountains. So let's start at the beginning of the Chorus dynasty, and that begins with Adolf Chorus I. 
Um, Adolf Kors, he was born in Prussia, which is now Germany in 1847. Um, at age 15, he started apprenticing at a brewery and worked in different breweries all over Prussia until 1868. Um, at that time, he decided to seek his own fortune and um, he began to immigrate to America at the age of 21. Um, because he didn't have much money, his only way to do so was um, coming as an undocumented stowaway. Adolf spent his entire life being so ashamed of being a stowaway and did not allow his family to ever speak of it. I think that's something he should be proud of. I mean, that's the American dream. Yeah, to come over and to be able to start from nothing. And obviously he did he did amazing in building up this company. Especially at that time in American history, that opportunity is available to anyone willing to work hard. And it sounds like he's been working hard for a lot of years. Yeah, definitely. Um, so he decided to start his American dream with a name change, which was very common at the time. He changed the family name from Coors, K-U-H-R-S, to Coors. I think that was a good move. Yeah, I think so too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easier. With his knowledge of running a brewery, he had his sights set on opening his own craft beer company. He made his way to Golden, Colorado and opened Coors Brewing Company at the age of 27. Adolf married Louisa Weber and they had eight children, including two that died in infancy. The oldest surviving son was named Adolf Coors Jr. Um, Jr. became the second president of the Coors Brewing Company. He and his wife, Mary Alice Kissler, had four children. The oldest child was named Adolf Kors III, and that is who we are going to be talking about today. Yes, Adolf III. So the founder's grandson, Adolf III, was born January 12th, 1915. Adolf was born with all the privilege and the benefits wealth can give you in the U.S., he took advantage of the finest education by attending private boarding schools back east, and then he received an invitation to study at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. At Cornell, he served as president of the Quill and Dagger Society. Mel, do you know about these secret societies at universities? I do not run in these type of crowds, so <laughs> I don't really so, know about them, but I've heard of them. You're not a, you're not a member? No, I'm not that okay. cool. <laughs> I'd tell you, but I'd have to yeah, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the, the society that was probably best known is Skull and Bones out of Yale. I kind of went down a rabbit hole researching these, but some of the biggest is uh, Skull and Bones out of Yale, Flat Hat at William Mary. I think that's the oldest, and then Bull's Blood at Rutgers. Uh, but Quill and Dagger is an extremely influential society. It was founded back in 1893. Are you part of any of these societies, Becky? I'm going to plead the fifth on that now. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but these people were the movers and shakers, which actually I would fall into that. I'm a mover and a shaker. But You, you definitely yeah. are. Oh, for sure, yeah. But the members of Quill and Dagger... I, Again, this this is I just kind of went off on this. This is super interesting. We have 24 Olympic competitors, 13 Rhodes Scholars, eight U.S. Congressmen, seven Pulitzer Prize winners, two United States Directors of Policy Planning, two United National Security Advisors, two World Bank Presidents, two Super Bowl winners, 
and in fact, even one Stanley Cup winner. So these are influential people. And now one podcaster exactly. as well because Becky. Exactly. That's me. <laughs> so after making some lifelong friends, he made some, some great connections and some lifelong friends there. Um, and he received his Ivy League education. Adolf returned to Colorado and began working at the family business. He eventually became CEO and chairman of the board at Coors Brewing Company. He also met and married the love of his life, Mary Urquhart Grant, in 1940. They had four children. They settled down at a beautiful ranch just outside of Golden. I've got to tell you, in all of the research I did, everything points to them being a really happy family. He loved being a father. He was dedicated to his children. He came home every night, loved his wife. They really seemed like they had a really happy life. On February 9th of 1960, it started out the same as any other Tuesday for the aid for Adolf and his family. Adolf kissed his wife goodbye and left for work around 8 a.m. Mary said he was upbeat and in a good mood. Um, nothing bad had happened that morning and he left the house. He had a busy day planned with several appointments on his schedule. He hopped into his car, um, an international travel all, which Becky had to explain to me. She's older than me. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> um, uh, it's a kind of station wagon type of car. And he started the 12 mile drive into Golden. That same morning, a milkman who was on his regular route drove across Turkey Creek Bridge, which is a one-lane bridge located just out of sight, outside of Morrison, Colorado. I, I did have a milkman growing up, though. That, you know what? Mike and I, my husband and I had a milkman for a little bit after we got married. So it's they good. were around. Yeah. It's good milk. Yeah, it is good mm -hmm. milk. Um, this milkman couldn't get across the bridge because of a parked vehicle that was blocking the traffic lane. He was curious, and so he hopped out of his car and approached the vehicle. He could hear that the engine was still running and music coming from the radio. Looking closer, the car was empty. Okay, so the car's blocking traffic? Yes. Engine still running. Right. Like music and every so okay, just left there, abandoned on the bridge. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really strange to come across a car. It doesn't seem like there was a problem with the car. It was still on, the radio was on, so this seems very suspicious. Mm -hmm. The police were quickly called and they came to investigate the mysterious car. The international travel all was identified as belonging to Adolf Kors III. The police searched the area for any clue of where Adolf had gone, but they could not find him anywhere. Instead, in the creek just below Turkey Creek Bridge, police found one lens to a pair of glasses, two hats, a baseball cap, and a brown fedora, and on the bridge they found a very large blood stain that was found in the dirt. Ooh. So this definitely seems like there was a struggle or something happened here. This is weird. With one lens from a pair of eyeglasses? Yeah. I think that's a struggle. I yeah. agree. Mm -hmm. Police did not hesitate to throw this investigation into high gear. Ever since the infamous Lindbergh baby kidnapping and murder, the U.S. government made kidnapping of anyone, a man, woman, or a child, a federal offense. And so the jurisdiction fell at the feet of the FBI. Um, the FBI 
Ooh, can't say that. The FBI quickly made the search for Adolf Kors the third, the largest manhunt in the world. So they were quick to jump on this. So the Kors family was worth millions in the 1960s. So money was really no consequence to them. Mary Adolph's wife made it very clear to the investigators, to the police, to the FBI, that she would do anything to get Adolph home and safe again. So I've got a weird little side note I found here during the research. Kidnapping had unfortunately affected the Coors family in the past. They had been notified by authorities 27 years earlier there in Golden, Colorado, that the police had stopped an active kidnapping plot for Adolf II, who again, that's we're talking about in our story, Adolf III. So Adolf II is Adolf III's father. Um, Adolf II was serving as CEO and chairman of the board at the time, and he was threatened with the kidnapping. Which that is so scary to be threatened with a kidnapping, and then just how do you live your normal life, and then to have it actually happen, this is scary. Well, and I, I would assume that they had this cloud, this, this kind of danger hanging over their family since since that incident. So, um, so now let's actually stop and like, let's look over the evidence. Let's think about our scene. So, okay, like you told us, we have a car blocking a lane. The engine is idle. Music's on. We've got a single lens of glasses. And then the, the two hats, right? There were two, two hats. Two hats, yes. And then the blood. That huge blood stain. So this is looking pretty fishy. Yes, I agree. So it is, it's really good that the FBI jumped right in and put this into high gear mm -hmm. right away. Because yeah. this is, there's something wrong here. Well, and, and our, our victim, Adolf the, the third, is not living a high-risk lifestyle. This is a man that goes to work, works hard, goes home to his family every night. So, um, okay, so our scene, Turkey Creek Bridge was in a very secluded area, kind of surrounded by popular hunting spots. A, a witness did come forward and reported possibly hearing a gunshot, but police could not really be sure if the gunshot was related to our scene. Which makes sense. In Colorado, a lot of shooting places around it, they're probably just used to hearing gunshots all the time. So it probably didn't stand out to anybody. Yeah, we're in Utah and it's not uncommon for for us to have hunters around. Not necessarily in our neighborhood. <laughs> right. If I heard it in my neighborhood, that would be a red flag. But, but in this secluded area, it's probably very common. We're probably, what, 10 minutes away from where people shoot. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the next day, on February 10th, Mary, who is Adolf's wife, received what I'm sure she was just absolutely dreading, and that's a type and unsigned ransom letter delivered by the U.S. mail. And we are going to share that letter with you next. Mrs. Kors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom, 200,000 in tens and 300,000 in twenties. There will be no negotiating. Bills, used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning, we will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions, place money and this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. 
have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post Section 69. Sign ad, King Ranch, Fort Lupton. Wait at NA 94455 for instructions after ad appears. Deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released, unharmed, within 48 hours after the money is received. Uh, special thanks to Mike for our creepy voice reading there. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so the kidnapper demanded $500,000, which nowadays that is a large sum of money, mm -hmm. yeah. but not impossible to collect for a wealthy family. Yet adjusted for inflation, that $500,000 um, in 1960 would be equal to $4.7 million and some change in 2022. So yeah. that's a big chunk of money. And this kidnapper is not messing around. Yes. So we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Rocky Mountain Red Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. The FBI document specialist got right to work on the ransom letter Mary had received. The letter was dusted for prints, but none were found. And they noticed that whoever typed this letter was actually an experienced typist. Good punctuation, um, two spaces after each period, which is the correct format. Melanie, did you know that? Yes, I actually did know that. That's still how I type on a computer, which apparently... Which we're not supposed to do. That's what I hear, but I still do it. I, I can't change that habit by now. Um, but yeah, so correct format, no typos, um, no misstriking, no whiteout, nothing like that. This was not written by some dumb street criminal. This was, this was by someone who was educated. The FBI had a lot of experience with identifying all the unique markers left by a typewriter. The specialists were able to pinpoint the typewriter used as a Royal Light Portable Typewriter. So the typewriter retailed for $49.95 and could be found at, you know, all the major department stores. So, you know, not a huge help, but they still, you know, are working on narrowing down that pool. The FBI also noticed that this typewriter had a unique marker as an individual machine with the letter S. So the letter S was placed a little lower than every other strike. None of you ever seen on a typewriter how sometimes the letters just don't line up perfectly. Yes, my grandparents had a typewriter growing up, and so we enjoyed playing with it. And yes, I Did can, you? yeah, they're a little bit different. I, I have to quickly share a story. I wanted to be a writer so badly in elementary school. I saved my babysitting money, and in fourth grade, I bought my own typewriter, and it was awesome. 
You're amazing, Becky. <laughs> That's I'm awesome. I know. That would be great if you still had it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, I'm so sorry. Back to our story. The S was a little lower. So, this could come in handy down the road if the typewriter that the uh, criminal used was ever located. At this point, the FBI is really just gathering as many pieces to the puzzle as they possibly can and crossing their fingers. Um, as the FBI worked all of their all of the leads that they had, the Coors family had gathered together for support. They contacted their banks to bring in the ransom cash just as requested. They were just getting ready to get him back. Um, they were ready to cooperate and bring home Adolf. That's all they wanted. So as they sat there waiting, the kidnapper never called. The phone never rang it. Can you even imagine just sitting there waiting for this phone call and it just never comes? So they're 100% willing to cooperate. They've got the cash and they wait for that phone call and it never comes. I know. That's just so heartbreaking. Can, can you imagine the helplessness? No. They, no. Must have, they must have felt. There's nothing else they can do. They've put, put in all the effort that they can. So the local police department had a witness that came forward um, that may go down in history as one of the best mm-hmm. witnesses ever. Yes. On the morning of February 9th, a miner had been standing guard outside of his mine to deter the local claim jumpers. So a claim jumper is someone who illegally takes over someone else's mine and steals the ore. And his mine, luckily, was located right near Turkey Creek Bridge. And so he had been standing outside. This witness was extra observant due to the claim jumper. So he was really paying attention. And he had seen a yellow early 1950s model Mercury. He noticed and remembered the plates that they included AT and 62, which is amazing for a witness. The chances of this guy being out there and paying that much attention seem slim to none. And so they were really lucky that they had this witness. I was reading an article about what makes a good eyewitness. Because sometimes we don't, you know, sometimes eyewitnesses are terrible terrible help to an investigation can even lead an investigation in the wrong direction but um, I was reading what makes a good eyewitness the best eyewitnesses are not emotionally involved does that make sense to you yeah definitely and this minor was not emotionally involved mm-hmm. in the situation yeah emotions tend to distort people's memory or their point of view so you know with good investigative work, not leading questions, that type of thing. Our memories in the right situation can be quite reliable, just like our hero miner here in our story. So the police were able to locate four Mercury cars with AT and 62 in the license plate. One of the owners caught the attention of the investigators pretty quick. Walter Osborne had purchased a car less than a month earlier. The police went to his home to meet him and ask a few questions. And you know what they found, Mel? I don't. Why don't you tell me? Nothing. They found nothing. His apartment was completely empty. Which, that is a little alarming if the apartment's Mm -hmm. empty. That's weird. Red flag. Uh, The neighbors shared with police that Walter had moved out the day after the kidnapping and left no info or forwarding address. Which at that time was a big deal. Now we have cell phones and email, but if you don't leave any forwarding information, you're gone. 
He just disappeared. He disappeared. Now, no one was particularly close to Walter. He was very unsocial and did not have any, literally, any friends. The apartment cleaning lady did report that she had seen several guns laying around his place, but that was about it. Um, I would imagine in Colorado, especially at that time, guns laying around, isn't that alarming? Right. It probably didn't really stick out to mm-hmm. her until the police started questioning her about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't too out of the normal, but it was quite odd. Um, until the police checked the dumpster for the apartment. There, they found some stuff. Mel, did you know that you can find a lot about a person looking through their trash? Do you know I go through your trash on a <laughs> weekly basis? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's creepy. I apologize if you do. (laughs) So guess what they find in the trash? Police found empty boxes for brand new handcuffs and leg shackles. This guy is getting creepier and creepier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Insert dirty joke here. (laughs) A neighbor also reported that practically every night he could hear his neighbor typing late into the night coming from Walter Osborne's room. Now I can't imagine how annoying that must've been. Yes. That would have been really annoying. The typewriters are the, the clickety clack is very loud. So while at the apartment, police dusted the room for fingerprints and the name Walter Osborne did not come up with the search results. Rather a man with a previous record named Joseph Corbett Jr. So, so wait, the, the fingerprints didn't come up under Walter Osborne. They came up under a different name. Correct. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the apartment landlord looked at the mugshot of Joseph Corbett Jr. and identified him as Walter Osborne, the man who had rented the apartment. So clearly he had changed his name for some reason. Joseph Corbett Jr. was 31 years old in 1960. In 1951, Corbett had shot a man in the back of the head and killed him. Corbett claimed it was an act of self-defense. Okay, wait. So he shot a man in the back of his head and claimed self-defense? Yes. Did it work? There's a problem there. So Mm -hmm. he was convicted of murder and sentenced to prison to serve his time. So it did not work. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a model prisoner and was moved from maximum security to a minimum security facility. Shortly after the move to minimum, he escaped. Shocker. Yes. Mm -hmm. So our Walter Osborne is in fact the convicted murderer and escapee Joseph Corbett Jr. Joseph Corbett Jr. Okay. So now we know who we're looking for. Yes. Okay. So using his alias, Corbett worked for Benjamin Moore Painting Company as a paint mixer in Denver. While working, just like a lot of other criminals, Corbett just couldn't keep his mouth shut. He had talked with his co-workers about, quote-unquote, a plan to become a millionaire. He would tell them to watch the newspapers, and he would say, quote, they won't see me anymore, end quote, after he had completed his mysterious plan. So Corbett had stopped going to work after he completed his final shift the day before the kidnapping. He never contacted Benjamin Moore in any other way, never went for his final paycheck, nothing. He was gone. 
So four months before the kidnapping, the police believe Corbett purchased a Royal Light typewriter. Sound familiar? That does sound familiar. From a department store in Denver called May DNF. The clerk actually identified and remembered Corbett due to him paying cash for the typewriter. So this seems a little unbelievable, but then I did the inflation work and it makes sense. So you remember, do you remember how much the typewriter was now? Yeah, I think it was forty nine ninety five. Mm-hmm. So with inflation, that would be about five hundred dollars cash. Okay, that's kind of a lot of cash. And to just pull that out. makes sense. So I think with his creepiness pulling out five hundred dollars cash, that's why our clerk uh, remembered him buying the typewriter. So let's take our last break. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code red-handed. Eight days after the kidnapping and about 1,700 miles away, a vehicle was located. Um, It had been burned and dumped in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Whoever dumped the vehicle thought that they were pretty smart because they had removed the license plates. Um, But they didn't know that on each engine block of a Mercury, there is a unique serial number that can identify the vehicle. And it, yes, it turned out that it was Corbett's Mercury. So he's a smart guy, but not quite smart enough. Busted. Yes. The undercarriage of the Mercury held a treasure trove of information and priceless evidence of the journey that this car had made in the last eight days. The FBI, it presented the FBI and law enforcement with a timeline that had been made out of the dirt and the dust underneath the car. I love this type of police work. Yes, this is the super nerdy, really good stuff that they can just figure out where the car has been, which is so crazy. So the car had four distinct layers of dirt on the undercarriage. Um, And so the layers would be working back in the timeline. So layer one, the top layer, had sand. And they determined that that was probably uh, sand from the Jersey coast near where they had found the car. Layer two was a mix of different sands and dirts. And they figured that was probably from the drive across the Mm -hmm. country. Yeah. Layer three was a granite with rare pink feldspar. And as they were looking at this layer, they didn't know where this one had come from. So this one kind of, they need to investigate a little more. That seems like a really unique type of mineral. Yes. So that's, that's got to be. Yep. So this one really stood out for them, but mm-hmm. they aren't sure where it came from yet. So then the bottom layer was shale. And that perfectly matched the control sample that they had taken near Turkey Creek Bridge. So now they just don't know this one layer. So they need to find out where the mercury went after Turkey Creek Bridge. I'm loving this. Imagine, especially back in 1960, these um, these detectives putting these details together. Who knew that dirt could tell this story? I just love it. It's great. Yeah, it's really cool. So... Um, The investigators believed that the location of 
where the granite with the rare pink feldspar came from would probably hold where Corbett had taken Adolf after his abduction. So they really wanted to focus in on this and see if they could find it. The investigators set off all over Colorado to find this granite and the rare pink feldspar. They sent over 600 samples of soil to the crime lab trying to locate a match. They finally got the phone call that they had been waiting for and a match had been made. Pikes Peak is located in the front range of the Rocky Mountains. It's about 50 miles from Colorado Springs um, and it's an area that's very popular with hunters. Almost eight months after Adolf Kors III kidnapping, searchers had found skull, bones, and clothing in this area. The clothing matched the description Mary had been had given of her husband's clothing the morning he had kissed her goodbye for a normal day of work. Yes. How horrible, but also such a relief to the family to be able to take him home. Yeah, and that's a long time to just not know where he is. Um, two bullet holes were found going through the jacket and into his right shoulder blade. These bullets would have punctured Adolf's lung, making it a fatal injury for him. A pretty quick fatal injury. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Near the bones, the searchers also found a small pocket knife engraved with AC-111, Adolf Kors III. Later, dental records would identify the remains belonging to Adolf. He was killed at just 45 years old. J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director and founder of the FBA, FBI called Corbett the most wanted man in America. If J. Edgar Hoover is after you, you're you're done. You're in trouble. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. I agree. So let's think about somehow let's kind of go back and forth here. Let's think about how Corbett could have possibly committed this crime. Let's let's do it step by step and see if we can piece together a likely theory of what happened. We're not sure, but let's just kind of see what we can come up with. So Okay, first things first, he must have started planning. The typewriter perch was purchased a month before the kidnapping. And it seems like Corbett probably knew Adolf's route, so he probably had been watching him in preparation and knew where he was going to be driving. The, yeah, the location of the kidnapping, it seems very intentional to me, like a one-lane bridge. You're on a bridge. You can't run off as easy. And likely it was in such a rural area I'm sure he was assuming he'd have no witnesses. Yeah, he probably planned that location. Mm -hmm. The Mercury car that Corbett owned, when he purchased it, he hid it actually in an off-site garage. So none of his neighbors even knew he had a car. He wasn't using the car. You, that's, that's not normal. You don't buy a car and stash it. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that one, that really stood out. And then let's see, the letter that was sent to Mary, he must have mailed it before the kidnapping. He must have mailed it the morning of the kidnapping for Mary to receive it. Yeah, definitely. And it seems like the restraints were probably purchased and put into the car before the kidnapping. We found those boxes in the garbage. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm thinking he must have driven to that secluded Turkey Creek bridge and waited for Adolf, of course, to cross that bridge. And police believe that Corbett had backed his car onto the bridge to make it look like it was broken down. He could have like popped the hood. You're right. Yeah. He could have made it look like he was in need of help. So of course, being 
the good guy that we know he is must have arrived behind him, gotten out of the car. Hey, you broken down? What can I do for you? Can I help you? Yeah, Corbett probably Mm -hmm. at that point pulled out his gun, threatened him. Obviously, there was a struggle because we know there was those few items and some blood, especially the glass from Mm -hmm. his glasses probably was because of a struggle. Mm -hmm. And taking into consideration, we know that from the bullet holes in the jacket, he could have been, you must have been struck by, by, from behind. Yeah, he was. Of course, must have probably been running back to his car. He was probably trying to get away. And like you said, he was shot in the back, just like Corbett's other victim who was shot, shot from behind. Mm-hmm. With Cor's shot with a punctured lung, um, you know, his lungs are filling with blood, which again, we have that big blood stain that you mentioned before. It's a fatal wound. I'm thinking Cor's must have panicked and he just ruined his own plan by shooting his, his victim. Yeah, it sounds like that probably wasn't the plan. He'd already had sent the letter. He wanted the money. That's what he was going for. But this struggle ruined a plan for him. He must have panicked and just gave up on the ransom. He literally killed Adolf for nothing. Yeah, and he, he probably loaded him up in his car and drove We are about 45 minutes to dump his body. Adolf probably died during the car ride. He couldn't have lasted that long. Corbett was a hunter, so it's possible he was familiar with the Pikes Peak area. Yeah, he probably buried the body there and then left town the next day. Um, And then we know from the minerals and the undercarriage of the car that he drove across the country. And that's what the evidence tells us. Well, and if we think about it, the car, when it was found in New Jersey, it had been torched. Remember, it was just the bones of the car left. Corbett probably destroyed the car. Um, to get rid of that evidence. The interior, I'm sure, had a lot of blood and not to mention fingerprints, that type of thing. But um, he did not take in consideration the uh, serial number on the engine block or our geological evidence on the undercarriage. And all of this wouldn't matter if we didn't have that one eyewitness that was such a good witness. Mm -hmm. He really brought it all together. Our hero, hero minor. Yes. Mm-hmm. So with worldwide press and front pages internationally, just seven months later, Corbett was recognized and identified by two neighbors in Vancouver. When the FBI arrived to arrest Corbett, he stated, I'm your man. I'm unarmed. Wow. Sounds like he was ready to give up the run. Yes, he was. Um, so Corbett pled not guilty, but he was convicted of first degree murder on March 29th. 1961 he was sentenced to life in this case Um, this case is a very high profile case where soil evidence sorry it's the first high profile case where soil evidence was critical in the conviction so due to his good behavior just like he did in the last murder remember Corbett was released on parole in 1980 He worked at the Salvation Army as a truck driver until his retirement. At the age of 80, Corbett died by suicide in August 2009. I don't understand. After you have murdered two people, shot them from behind, escaped prison once, how do you get out, what, less than 20 years later on good behavior? That just doesn't make sense to me. What a second murder conviction. It's crazy. So after his release from prison... Before his his suicide, of course, 
this is crazy. He lived and died 10 miles from the location of Adolf's murder, and he always maintained his innocence. This is such an incredible case. I love this type of case where these small things um, are, are indisputable. The geological evidence that he probably didn't even think a thing of played such a big role. And we were able to literally backtrack and 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 show the steps of how this crime took place. Yeah, it's amazing what we're able to do with with the evidence that we have now. And this is a really cool case for that. Mm -hmm. So I think too, is I, I really love that. Um, and you know, there's not too much research that I could get into, but the course family did stay together. They stayed close. And of course their, their legacy is still moving forward. There you go. So if you guys have any thoughts or comments, we're going to post on our social medias. We didn't share those at the beginning. So our Instagram is uh, Rocky Mountain Red Handed, and so is our Facebook. And then our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. So we're going to share some pictures and things that we have, and we would love to hear any thoughts you guys have in the comments. And also, we are covering cases in any of the Rocky Mountain states. If you have case su suggestions for us, let us know. Give us a call. Not give us a call. Send us an email. Mel, what's our email again? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. So send us an email with any thoughts that you have on cases, and we'll try and get those on our list. And thanks for staying with our story here today. And until next time, keep your hands clean. <laughs>